Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to discuss some of the latest news stories affecting general practice. Coming up today, we're talking about a couple of interesting stories Nick has written about integrated care board tenders for GP contracts and what these might tell us about the possible direction of travel for general practice and how GP services could be commissioned in future. We're discussing physician associates and the role they have to play in the NHS after the BMA published a position statement saying it currently opposes government plans to expand their use. And we're talking about how the cost of living crisis is affecting patients and practices after an alarming RCGP survey found that GPs are seeing patients with diseases that should be confined to history, including malnutrition and rickets. Our good news story this week is about a survey from the Rebuild General Practice campaign showing how much the general public values general practice. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, we're discussing GP contracts. Nick has written a couple of stories over the past week about how integrated care boards are looking to award GP contracts that are currently up for tender and whether this tells us anything about how general practice could be commissioned in future. Nick, there's some interesting themes and trends that you've noticed from those tenders. Can you talk through some of these? The way integrated care boards are choosing to offer contracts for GP practices at the moment is interesting for several different reasons. As you said, there there seem to be some themes emerging And these are themes that could have really significant implications for the future of general practice. Some of the recent contract notices ICBs have posted on the government's tendering website give clues about things like how they see smaller practices. There are some interesting decisions too about the types of contract they're favouring for GP practices at the moment. And in one case, a primary care network, a PCN, has been awarded a GP practice contract. And that's a development that's potentially really significant too. Starting off with that last point about the PCN taking on a contract, the practice involved is in Hertfordshire. It's called the Lyme Surgery. It has about 7,500 patients, so around three quarters of the average practice list size in England. It's one of four practices in the Hoddesdon and Broxbourne PCN, and its current contract's due to expire at the end of January next year. And instead of looking to find a new provider to come in and run the practice independently, the ICB has taken a decision that it thinks is unprecedented to award the contract to the PCN itself. So effectively, the other practices in the network, in the PCN, will all take on this neighbouring practice together, rather than, for example, one of them taking it on as a branch surgery. And that PCN is able to hold a contract because it's set up as a limited company. And we know that by spring last year, there were possibly a couple of hundred PCNs that had also formed companies. So it's a really interesting question as to whether this is something that we're likely to see more of over time. And there'll probably be concerns from some GPs that PCNs taking on contracts could be a threat to general practice because they could form larger groups that might be more attractive for large private providers to come in and buy But some GPs I spoke to this week said they felt it was actually quite a creative solution that may be the best way to keep the practice under the control of local GPs at a time when heavy workload, underfunding and so on could make it difficult for some practices to take on an extra branch practice if they had to do it individually. There's another aspect to the plans for this surgery that's significant too, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. The other element that's interesting about this is that the ICB is changing the type of contract this practice will operate under as it moves under the control of the PCN. The Lyme surgery is currently operating under a time-limited APMS contract, 
But the contract the ICB plans to award to the PCN, which begins from February next year, is actually a GMS contract. It's the traditional type of GP contract that is awarded in perpetuity as opposed to the time-limited APMS type. The ICB explained this decision by saying that it felt the APMS contract was a disadvantage to the practice's long-term sustainability and left it exposed to multiple changes of provider over a short period and that that could in turn undermine the development of services delivered through primary care networks, as well as putting continuity of care at risk. This is where another of the themes from recent contract awards comes in. Another ICB recently took a a similar decision to move a practice from an APMS to a GMS contract, and it used very similar language to justify that change. So in, in a contract notice published earlier this month, Bedfordshire, Luton and Milton Keynes ICB said it had made a strategic decision not to re-procure small practices on APMS contracts because practices that had operated under those types of deal had frequently struggled with resilience and recruitment issues. While it's important to say that in many areas, NHS commissioners are continuing to offer APMS contracts, which are seen as a threat to traditional general practice because they're time limited and they're open to a wider range of providers in a way that traditional GMS contracts are not, There are some signs here that commissioners are deciding that APMS isn't working and maybe isn't the way to go. The final point that's coming out of contracts at the moment is around how smaller practices are being looked at and considered by ICBs. So obviously, practice mergers and closures have been driving up the average list size of GP practices at a rapid rate over the past decade or so. In 2013, the average practice list size was just under 7,000 patients and now it's getting close to 10,000. But the government and the NHS have always said officially they don't have anything against smaller practices. But two ICBs have offered contracts for smaller practices this month, one with around 6,500 patients and another with just under 5,000, only to providers willing to take them on as a branch surgery. So ruling out the option of GPs coming in and taking on the contract as a standalone small practice. So this is a move that will reinforce the direction of travel towards general practice at scale and away from smaller practices, which we know tend to be among the most popular with patients. I spoke to a BMA England GP committee member about this, Dr Richard Van Mellertz, and he said he was worried about this development because engineering general practice in this way could threaten the independent contractor model, basically by putting GPs off taking on partnerships in smaller practices. And he said, too, that there should be enough funding on offer for smaller practices to be viable on their own. And interestingly, he also mentioned that pushing other practices to take them on as branch surgeries, which they might feel compelled to do to look after patients in their local area, could put those practices under extra strain and threaten their sustainability. And ultimately, if they find practices locally aren't willing to take on an extra branch surgery... Perhaps that could be the trigger for more PCNs to be awarded contracts as we talked about earlier. So it's interesting times for general practice. Yeah, definitely. It'd be interesting to see if more ICBs are looking at awarding contracts in that way in future, won't it? Next up, we're talking about physician associates. As the NHS has struggled with recruitment and retention of doctors and nurses, we know there's been a shift to working more in multidisciplinary teams and an expansion of new roles in both primary and secondary care. One of these roles that's come in for some scrutiny in recent weeks and months is physician associates. So Emma, the BMA put out a position statement on physician associates last week. Why did it do that and what did that have to say? 
Well, before we get into what the BMA had to say, it's perhaps worth explaining a bit about the background to all this. So if you're a GP or a doctor listening to this and you're on Twitter or or X, as I guess we're supposed to call it now, you're unlikely to have missed an often very heated debate about the role of a physician's associates in the NHS. So there are now more than 700 full-time equivalent physician's associates or PAs working in general practice in England, according to official figures. And most of these will be employed under the additional roles reimbursement scheme. So PCNs, primary care networks, get funding for these roles. And then overall, there are as many as three and a half thousand working across the health service as a whole. So there are more PAs in hospitals than primary care at the moment. And you have to undertake a two-year course to become a physician's associate. So the issue is that some doctors are really concerned about how the physician associate role and the anaesthetist associate role, which is very similar and operates in hospitals, is currently working and have been very vocal about that on social media. What they're worried about is what PAs are expected to do, what they're actually doing in practice, which many feel is often outside what the scope of the role should be. There's also an issue around how much PAs and anaesthetist associates are being paid when compared with newly qualified doctors, which the BMA is really very unhappy about. And the other worry about all of this is whether this role is actually just confusing for patients and whether patients are actually aware that they're not seeing a doctor when they have an appointment with a PA. I mean, I should say here that not all doctors are against using PAs. There are lots of GPs and doctors in hospitals who believe that PAs have a role to play as part of a multidisciplinary team. But I do think most would say that this only works when when it's very, very clear about what PAs should and shouldn't be doing, where there's proper medical supervision in place and PAs know when to escalate concerns about patients. So looking specifically at general practice, some GPs... I think it's fair to say, are really worried about physicians' associates seeing undifferentiated patients. I mean, some GPs don't think they should be doing that at all. But the guidance for the network contract enhanced service, so this is the contract through which primary care networks operate and how they are funded for the additional role staff, including physicians' associates, that guidance says that that is exactly what PAs should be doing. It says they should be providing first point of contact care for patients presenting with undifferentiated, undiagnosed problems and using history taking, physical examination and clinical decision making skills to establish a diagnosis and management plan in partnership with the patient. So basically, that's quite odds with what lots of GPs think they should be doing. So clearly, if that is what they're doing, there really needs to be robust supervision processes in place so that a GP can review the decisions that PAs might be making to make sure there's no patient safety concerns And many doctors are worried that there just isn't enough guidance about how that supervision should work. In general practice, these concerns about physicians' associates really came to a head earlier this year with a really tragic case of a 30-year-old patient called Emily Chesterton, who died from a pulmonary embolism after twice seeing a physician's associate in her practice. The practice involved in that case has since decided not to employ PAs. Its serious incident report highlighted a string of failures by the physician's associate who saw Emily... And that case was actually raised in Parliament by Labour MP Barbara Keeley, who said it raised serious questions about the wider use of physicians' associates in the NHS and and particularly about allowing them to provide unsupervised one-to-one consultations in general practice. And that case also led many GPs to call for a real overhaul of the rules around supervision of non-medical staff like PAs who were employed under the additional roles scheme. So these are all some of the issues have been going on and which led the BMA to put out that position statement last week. Yeah, And and so what has the BMA said? 
Well, the BMA's basically said it's opposed to any further expansion of physician associates. They're also very much against giving PAs prescribing rights, which is something that the government and NHS England is working towards. The BMA's biggest concern really is patient safety. And chief within that is the actual title, physician's associate or anaesthetist associate or medical associate. The BMA says that these terms effectively blur the distinction between doctors and non-medically qualified professionals. The BMA says that patients and their families are often unaware that they've not been seen by a doctor when they've seen a PA, which it says isn't surprising because the title itself is confusing. I mean, the BMA would rather physicians associates reverted back to being called physicians assistants, as they used to be called, to stop this confusion. I mentioned that tragic death of Emily Chesterton earlier and following her death, her mother told the BBC that neither her nor her daughter were aware that Emily hadn't seen a doctor. They thought a physician associate was a doctor. So the BMA's concerns about this are not without basis, you know, far from it. One thing I've not mentioned yet is that physicians associates and anaesthetist associates in hospitals, they're not regulated at the minute. So there's no professional regulation in the way that doctors, nurses, pharmacists, paramedics are all regulated, for example. That's obviously a problem in itself. But the BMA says that the other problem with this is that the current plan is for the GMC to regulate them, which the BMA is not happy about that at all. The BMA says that will just further confuse patients if they're regulated by the same organisation that regulates doctors. So it wants regulations for PAs to move to the Health and Care Professions Council, which regulates other allied health professionals. And it says that when regulation does come into effect, it should be around a very specific and tightly defined role for what a physician associate should be doing. So there's a host of problems and concerns there. The BMA said it's going to be providing guidance to doctors on supervision and also another important point about the potential liabilities that doctors working with PAs are taking on if they do supervise them. And I certainly think that GPs will welcome a bit more clarity on both of those points. Do we think physician associates have a future in the NHS? Well, NHS and the government certainly think so. The NHS workforce plan envisages a huge expansion of the role. Training places for PAs are set to expand to over 1,500 a year by 2031-32 and the workforce plan says that this will deliver a workforce of 10,000 physician associates by 2036-37. The plan also says that many more PA roles during that period will be targeted towards primary care and mental health than is currently the case. So obviously big plans to expand the use of PAs in general practice. The current plan is for physicians associates to be regulated by the GMC by the end of 2024 and then after that The plan is to move towards giving them prescribing rights, which NHS England and the government says will enable them to make a greater contribution to the NHS workforce, and which the Department of Health said will mean they can take even more work off GPs' hands effectively. So I suppose the question is whether some of the problems I described earlier are teething problems that can be worked through and resolved. While the BMA has said it's opposed to any further expansion of physicians associates, it also says that it is prepared to review that position if all of those concerns I mentioned are addressed. So there is potentially a way forward to make the role work. But clearly, there needs to be much more work done to make sure that people understand these roles. And obviously, clinical guidance on what medical supervision should entail is obviously needed so that everyone knows where they stand and GPs are clear about what the actual workload implications and the legal implications are for them if they decide to use physicians associates as part of their team. And I think that is what the real challenge is. We're talking about an NHS, both in primary and secondary care, where there's a massive shortage of doctors and rising patient demand. 
And let's face it, that's why NHS England and the government are so keen to embrace new roles and look at new ways of working using multidisciplinary teams. So I suppose the real question is, do GPs have time to do all of their own appointments with patients and then supervise all of the other staff who are seeing patients? I mean, proper supervision takes time. And yes, it may be less time than it takes for GPs to see the patients that the PA has seen, but it's still a lot of time. So it's really about working out how PAs and some of these other roles can be used to reduce GP workload rather than adding to it in a way that's safe for patients. Very few people in the UK have been unaffected by rising inflation and the rising cost of living. We've talked on the podcast before about the impact that rising costs are having on practice finances and on practice's ability to retain staff in lower paid roles who are potentially able to earn more elsewhere. But obviously, rising costs are also having a huge impact on the patients that GPs and their teams see every day in general practice. We already know that across the UK, we face huge challenges around health inequalities and the cost of living crisis threatens to significantly widen this gap. Nick, this week, the RCGP published details of a survey that set out how rising inflation has been affecting patients over the past year or so. What did it find? The College's survey found that around three quarters of GPs are seeing growing numbers of patients with problems linked to the cost of living crisis. What that means is that they're seeing patients with really quite shocking issues, including malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies and even rickets. The college said diseases like these uh, should have been consigned to the annals of history, as you mentioned earlier, but that instead they'd made an alarming comeback because of the way that the cost of living crisis is driving up numbers of people affected by poor diet and poverty. GPs who responded to the survey also said they were facing rising requests for help with non-medical issues from patients who were struggling with cost of living pressures. So it's things like requests for information about access to council services and financial advice and so on. And more than nine out of 10 GPs who took part in this survey, I think it was 1800 GPs roughly who responded to it, said they were worried that the avalanche of people needing support with issues linked to the cost of living crisis would actually undermine their ability to deliver the standard medical care that their patients need. Yeah, I mean, these are really worrying findings, aren't they? And obviously devastating for the patients involved. But what sort of impact does this have on GPs and practices if ill health is rising? I mean, obviously, I assume workload will increase, but some of these cases must be really difficult to deal with on a personal level for the GPs or staff who encounter them. Did the survey have anything to say about that? The college said general practice desperately needs more help to cope with the rising demand for support that their patients need. And it said that GPs obviously aren't financial advisors or housing officers, but are often the first port of call for patients in moments of crisis. And that although you know doctors understand the links between health and social factors, there's often very little they can do to actually help with those sorts of requests, particularly at a time when overall workload is at this absolute peak. The college chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, also pointed out that in areas with the greatest demand, there's often the greatest levels of underfunding. We know that practices in deprived areas are caring for about 10% more patients with about 7% less funding. The impact on GPs of being faced with these issues that they have little power to control but that affect their patients really significantly is, is really tough. Moral distress is defined as the psychological unease that comes when a professional identifies a, an ethically correct action to take but is constrained in their ability to actually take that action. The RCGP says 
the problems GPs are seeing, these cases of people with malnutrition and other issues that seem like they should be from a bygone age, that they feel unable to fix, are having a, a really worrying impact, likely contributing to high rates of burnout and so on. And has the college said anything about what it thinks needs to happen to sort all of this out? I mentioned that practices in deprived areas where cost of living pressures are, are most acute are dealing with more patients with less funding. And the college says it's absolutely vital that the government takes action to fix that imbalance. It says general practice everywhere needs more support and investment, but that the government needs to have a particular focus on practices in deprived areas that are underfunded compared to their counterparts elsewhere. And for its part, the government told us that it recognises that the impact that cost of living pressures are having, and it said that the UK is providing one of the largest support packages in Europe. And that may be the case, but clearly from the evidence GPs are reporting about the impact the cost of living crisis is having on their patients and the kind of cases that that they're seeing, it's simply not enough, uh, or it's not going far enough for many of the people who are most desperately in need of, of additional support. This week's good news story is about a survey carried out by the Rebuild General Practice campaign, which highlights really high levels of support for general practice from members of the public. A survey of more than 4,000 people across Great Britain found that more people said that general practice should be a priority for NHS funding right now than for any other specialty or area than A&E. The figures for general practice and A&E were pretty neck and neck, with 54% saying A&E should be prioritised and 52% saying general practice should be prioritised. One other interesting finding from the survey was that there was also very strong support for continuity of care, particularly among older patients, which is perhaps not surprising. But we know that continuity is something that GPs really value and want to be able to deliver as well. So both of these findings show real backing for general practice from the public and are potentially a strong lever for GPs to take into future contract negotiations and for influencing politicians ahead of the general election that's expected next year. That's exactly why we're seeing rebuild general practice re-emerging, as it were, now after being quiet for the past few months. BMA England GP Committee Chair Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer tweeted that the campaign was back just in time for party conference season. She said that GPs and patients needed to work together to end decades of neglect to bring back our family doctor. And that was something she actually spoke to me about when I interviewed her for the podcast in the summer about working together with patients to tell a compelling story to politicians about the value of general practice. So this could well be the first signs of that. And of course, you know, Rebuild General Practice is very much backed by the BMA and is funded by the General Practice Defence Fund, which is itself funded by local medical committees. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that the BMA will be using some of these findings while talking to politicians and others at the Conservative Party conference, which starts this weekend, and also Labour's annual conference, which starts the following weekend. So you can read more about that survey on our website. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week, so please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other useful resources to help you in your day-to-day role on our website at gponline.com.